0: Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this next episode of EDGE. It's my pleasure to introduce Peter Boyce. Peter is the principal solicitor of a well-known uh, North Coast uh, legal practice, Butler and Dermott Lawyers. Um, this firm dates back to 1913. And Peter uh, himself and uh, the firm employs a number of uh, solicitors and uh, approximately 30 staff. Some of you might know Peter from his uh, highly publicised representation uh, on behalf of the Morecambe family around Daniel Morecambe. Peter himself, his interest and contribution to the community is extensive, uh, currently is the chairman of uh, the Sunshine Coast Turf Club, Wish List, and a number of other organisations, and obviously a strong interest in broader sporting pursuits such as Rugby League as a former past chairman of the Sunshine Coast Gympie Rugby League, Sunshine Coast Sea Eagles, and so on. He received in uh, 2013 a well-deserved Order of Australia medal, also the recipients of many uh, prestigious uh, legal awards, including the Civil Justice Award and the Queensland Law Society's President's Medal in 2016. Peter enjoys uh, the practice of law. So welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Peter, tell me a little bit about uh, the young Peter boys growing up in the uh, Nambour or uh, the North Coast there. I
2: was born in Warwick initially, but my parents were farmers and then went to boarding school, did my law in in Brisbane for five years. And then um, when I was 22, I came to the uh, Sunshine Coast and I've remained here ever since.
1: The attraction of the Sunshine Coast, the professional opportunity, was the lifestyle? To be honest, I, I'm not sure that I knew
2: really where I was heading or what I was getting into at that point because the only real reason why I came here was we used to do the agency work for the firm I'm now uh, running. And um, I became aware that one of their partners was wanting to sell out. So up I came to Nambour, 22 year old. And and then they, fortunately for me, took me into partnership and I've remained here since 1977. What was your
1: uh, young Peter Boyce life like? Carefree, uh, into sport?
2: I played rugby league. A lot of, I played in Brisbane. Uh, in the Metropolitan League because I had lots of study to do and, and then here I played for the local club and then I became the first chairman of the Amalgamated Clubs for Nambour and I've had a great interest in rugby league throughout my life and um, I've been fortunate to be chairperson of um, Sunshine Coast, been on the Wide Bay uh, board. Then I was uh, the inaugural chairman of what's now known as the Sunshine Coast Falcons. I set them up, and then after about three years, we were admitted into the Queensland Cup and formed an alliance with Manly, and we won the premiership that first year. So, but yeah, that that plus horse racing had always a great interest in horse racing and the characters you meet. So I met uh, lots of people, and I was like everyone else at age twenty two, like there was no tomorrow some days. So, but it was good fun.
1: Peter. At the heart of Peter Boyce, uh, what, what are those core cool values, Dave I mean, you're attracted to law, and we'll talk about that, and you're a great practitioner of that. But what are those values? You're a Catholic. and
2: uh, What are those core cool values? Well, one of the core values is uh, to make sure you live a good life as best you can, uh, to be honest, um, but also to care for fellow human beings and, and be involved in your community. There, there are some really great people you meet who have never had the opportunities I've I've been given because of the fact that I'm able to do law. We've always had the view and that you um, need to give back and recognise how fortunate we are and be part of our local community, part of our whole community. So, from that point of view, and you know, I've been married and we've got six kids and. Uh, what a great life that's been. I, I can't believe how blessed and privileged I am to have six healthy children and a great wife. And I, I really see myself as being really lucky.
1: Yeah, well, pursue your luck. I think there's a lot of dedication and giving and the hard work that many people who know you celebrate quite significantly and acknowledge. I know you're a very humble person by nature.
2: Yeah, I, I don't really think anything of that, you know. I, I really see that I... Literally, when I came to Nambour, I had nothing. I, uh, I owed money on my car and, and my mum and dad mortgaged their house for me to buy in here. And that was a, a horrendous, frightening time for me personally because I've got eight other siblings, but they, they did. And then I learned a lot from my partners here, uh, the butler and the McDermott. Um, they were great people and great mentors but they also had a great um, love for community, particularly John. It was in it. Not everything, but lots of things, and it was really well regarded.
1: The obvious linkage between the pursuit of law and your values that we could make that link, but uh, when at some stage you thought, this is a profession for me, was it came early? or? No,
2: it was really funny. In fact, I probably would have been a farmer if, if there was room at home my mum and dad were farmers and um, my eldest brother was a farmer and he worked on the farm with mum and dad and bear in mind I went to school in New South Wales and I didn't really know what I was going to do and I had an elder brother doing law. Results came out and I thought, well, i better go and get a job. So I did. I went to Brisbane, walked the streets for three days and went to just cold call, so to speak, and... Then I got a job at King & Company, which was about the fourth biggest firm at that time. And I was put into the litigation section and I really relished the work you you do as a litigator. And from there on, once I was really within about six months, I realised that I think I've made the right decision. I'm really happy doing what I'm doing and I love doing what I'm doing and It's not a day that you go to work and think, I wish I could get out of here.
1: It's just a privilege to be able to do it. You talk about privilege and uh, not a day goes by. What's your definition of generally a a good day in law for you? What's success look like for you?
2: Success is often measured by backing your client, uh, taking instructions and then saying, well, okay, um, we mightn't win, but we'll at least have a really good go at it and when you do win, they're priceless uh, because you have to pick yourself up some days when you don't win. So you, you live on, on your wins to some extent, but on the way through, it's the person that you're representing that you really get to understand what they're all about and why they're where they are or why they're in that position. So that's, that's the, the beauty of doing law. I always say... You never know who's coming through the front door, what your next client will be, and everyone's different. Even if you do similar type of work in a particular section, there is uh, no two cases that are the same. They might have similarities, but never the same.
1: So, tell me, take me to the Morecambe case, and uh, it's been well publicised. I mean, it's well captured. Um, just a a wonderful uh, contribution. Um, so for my purposes and the listeners, how did you get involved? I mean, I get a sense of why you're probably involved, but uh, why did you take that on? Well, I
2: I believe I'd either seen or met uh, one of them before Daniel was taken. A good friend of mine became heavily involved in the search for Daniel and and this, this is early days and uh, the PGA was being held at Coolum and I met uh, Bruce and Denise there and then they they were wanting to set up a foundation so my friend uh, Tim Ryan asked me would I help him do that and I did and we set it up uh, within a couple of months I think it was of Daniel's disappearance and then um, I remained. I became a board member, and I remained on that. And then Bruce and Denise would um, chip away at, you know, the continued search for Daniel. Uh, never seen such resilience in my life. There were some people who were people who you think what a waste of time that would be. But and I, I often said to Bruce, "Why are you bothered?" Um, going to talk to those people, why, why? they're going to lead to nowhere. And he used to always say to me, I only need a skerig of information and if I turn that that person down, it might be the skerig of information that leads us to find where Daniel is. Um, so I got a great understanding of that. I also got a great understanding of how out of absolute adversity, People with drive and who had the ability to uh, continue that drive were able to make sure that, firstly, his loss, and their loss, would not be in vain. So I'd go to some meetings. You know, I'd had a, a huge day at work and you think, oh, I don't know that I really want to go here. But every time I lost that meeting, I thought, I can't believe, A, how good the meeting was, be how good they were and we should just suck it up and get on with if you think you've had a bad day just get on with it because yep. that's that what they do so that was really good they also said about regular contact with the police obviously and asking him where are we at what have we done have you reviewed it all of those things and they were assured of course yes we have but off their own bat, they went and applied for an inquest. And I'm not sure that was well received in some quarters because some thought that they were not necessarily trusting them. That, that wasn't the case. And Bruce said, we want to just make sure that no stone's been left unturned. And and there might be some things on the way through that we find, but that's just the way it is. But we're, our primary aim is to find out what happened to Daniel. Um, and to bring the person who talking uh, to justice. So they got the inquest. They said to me, "Oh, look, we don't really, we can't afford it. We'll just go and do it ourselves." And I said, "That's that's a very bad decision. You'll get slaughtered." Yeah. So then I got on board, and I think we got. I think the coroner's brief was about seven thousand pages, and I can tell you that the Morcoms read every word of it, were well and truly on top of everything, and they were fantastic to deal with, mm. in the sense of being able to understand where we're heading, why, we're, why we might take that path. So um, there were a few things that we gleaned in the inquest that were perhaps not well done. And you got to remember, we we're, we could be open to criticism by saying that's all good, well and good in hindsight, but um, there were some things that really should have been done better, one of which was uh, they focused on a fellow called Douglas Jackway, who was in a blue car. Now, he's, he's a terrible person, mm. uh, has a terrible criminal history and – but he happened to be in that area at about that same time. There was a real uh, drive that he was it. But they were short of a scary conf- final thread to say, yep, that's him. But what they didn't do was there was only one person uh, who had, in fact, been passed aside and back passed aside uh, in the persons of interest that we were given. Uh, and there were about 31 of them. And that person was interviewed within two weeks. That happens to be Cowan, by the way. And two, two of the um, officers who, who um, went and spoke to Cowan uh, said to the lead investigator, you need to put a lot more resources on him because we think he's your man. That was not heeded. And in fact, those two officers say that they were sort of more or less castigated for suggesting that it's the blue car and what would you know? So, mm. so that was the first thing. The second thing was, about two and a half years later, they must have been reviewing it, so they did a drive-by from, from the underpass at Palmwoods to this fellow's place in, in Mullaney and worked out that he was about, I think it was three-quarters an hour, an hour short on his alibi because he said he went past here and got home at a particular mm. time. Everyone was saying, well, um, how, you're short of time. So he then came up with a version of, I bought some drugs on the way home. So they obviously gave uh, unity to uh, this person who was a drug dealer, uh, not a very big drug dealer, I don't think, but so they go and see this lady and she says, oh, look, I, I, and bear in mind it's over two and a half years later, look, I have sold him some from time to time, but was it that day? Can't remember. So the police accepted that that's what he did. But one of the things about that was that the drug dealer had a partner and the police uh, said he was scrambled that day, so they didn't bother bothered interviewing. So when we get to the inquest, we've got 31 persons of interest who the police didn't want us to cross-examine, by the way, but the coroner said we could cross-examine eight or nine of them, and they were the main, main culprits. Out of that, I should say to you that before I started the inquest, I would, would have probably marched in the street to say that if a person's done their time, they should get out of jail. There were a number of those people who I don't believe should ever be let out of jail, because they're a level of criminality that is so far beyond the criminals that I had met and dealt with in my practice. So they were really quite scary, and the number of pedophiles around was scary. But back to the inquest, so we asked the coroner that we wanted to cross-examine the partner. Um, So the relevant detectives got a statement from him and long he came and he said in his statement and in, in, in and in evidence that on that particular day, I think it was a Sunday, uh, every week we'd go to the BOR RSL and having gone there, we'd we'd have lunch of a daytime on Sunday and then we'd play the pokies for a bit and then we'd go home. And if you're a member of a club and you play the pogies, there's a membership loyalty card which you can swipe.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you wouldn't believe it. Seven years later, this is, we were able to get from uh, the computer records where they were stored, not by the club, that here they are at a particular date and time swiping their membership card at the BORSL. What that did was show that his alibi was now stuffed. So shortly after that, the inquest got adjourned and the police put an undercover policeman on the plane with him, unbeknownst to him, back to Perth. And from that day on, they then infiltrated him, built up his confidence on this criminality and criminal conduct, so much so that he then returned to Glasshouse and showed him where he dumped Daniel's body, hence he was charged. So I frankly think if it wasn't for Denise and Bruce's drive, resilience, we might never have had that inquest, but equally, we might never have got to the bottom of what we have got and namely that Cairn's now in there for life and one would hope he never gets out.
1: Well, Peter, I think, um, again, you're very humble, but uh, your pro bono work, your absolute dedication, support from Morecambs, everybody cheers and celebrates um, around you and from far. and what you've done has just been simply nothing short of amazing. So from my perspective, and I'm only one person, that's the that's the feedback I get. So thank you, my friend. That's uh, great. It's
2: always been my view of it, how lucky have I been? to be involved, because, you know, I, I ran into some really great people, particularly Bruce and Denise, and the two boys. You've got to remember that the two boys had to sit through, as did Bruce and Denise, some horrendous stuff. And I saw that Bruce and Denise and the boys build up such respect from the press during that hearing after having heard such horrendous stuff about what might have happened to their son that you could just see the whole scenario turn so that here were some really decent people who'd lost a son that they should never have lost so it was was uplifting I tell you
1: On the scale of myself but um, you, you know you said your privileged position. You're in a great position to look at all ends of society, Peter, from the law, uh, the racetrack, um, all sorts of a family person. You mentioned this word criminality and level of criminality and looking at broader societal trends. So I guess arguably when we are growing up, this has changed. Um, what are you seeing out there from those different vantage points in terms of trends and issues?
2: The first thing I say to that is there's some really great people and we should never forget that the fabric of our society is still there. It might have broken away or fractured a little bit, but there's still some really great people. What I think is one of our biggest concerns is the impact of drugs. Drugs have ruined so many kids' lives uh, that I can't believe what it's done to some of them. The best example I can give you is of a 19-year-old who had been on ice for a very short time, did some horrendous things that were stupid, and they were criminal conduct, but not, not the worst type of criminal conduct. I saw him in the watchhouse. house. Um, we didn't apply for bail deliberately, and I got him out 18 days later, Uh, on bail I couldn't believe that he was the same person but more to the point he doesn't remember seeing me at the watch house three days later so it's the effect of drugs and the impact of drugs that I think in in my profession and um, but also even at the turf club sometimes when there's big days you think some of those people are just off their head And that's an area that's of grave concern, I think, for society, that we can't be vigilant enough about our kids and drugs and we need to be ever-present and make sure they don't get down that path. But it doesn't select its customers. It infiltrates all levels of society. So I think that's a major issue.
1: We've talked on the extremity of um, abuse and pedophilia and um, in some of the emerging trends around child neglect and, um, I guess, um, child abuse, are you seeing more and more of that, Peter? You're a strong family man, but I often wonder
2: whether they'll publish statistics on uh, the lockdown period of COVID and whether the um, rate at which child sexual abuse, for argument's sake, increased. Um, there are uh, such worrying trends about. How many people appear before the courts charged with sexual offences that none of us would say should ever happen? But the frequency and the number of people before the courts with sexual offences is, I think it's the next thing apart from drugs.
1: So in uh, bringing the podcast to conclusion, Peter, you're a, you're a leader, leader in your own field, you're a leader in community, leader obviously a key person in, in many people's lives as a father, a, a husband, et cetera. What's your advice to, um, it's hard, I don't know, to give other people advice, but just your wisdom in terms of if you're a leader, what are the things you believe good leaders should do? I think the
2: first thing is if, if you deal with your family, you need to make sure that you never give up and you always keep close contact of who they're associating with, who they're mixing with and what they're up to. I think as a community, we also need to make sure that we're conscious of what's in our community, who's in our community. But I do think that by and large, most people try to do the right thing. It's only a small percentage of people in our society that don't, but they unfortunately get all the publicity. So you can be branded with, oh, look how bad we're going. But when you then sit down and say, well, it's really not that bad because they wouldn't be 5%. So I always really find lots and lots of great people, and that doesn't matter whether they're well healed or got nothing. There's some really, really good people in our society. So um, I think... As long as that fabric stays, we've got a pretty good road right ahead of us.
1: Peter, you're a great person and we we thank you, as I said before, on behalf of so many of the work you do and uh, supporting people beyond self, a selfless uh, contribution and a significant one in your community and beyond. And uh, I'm just absolutely privileged, using your words, and very humble to have a conversation with somebody I admired so greatly, so uh, Peter Boyce, uh, thank you for being a guest today on Edge.
2: Thank you, been my privilege as I keep saying. So thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of Edge.